0: Five six thousand. That's one eight hundred two four five six thousand. Or visit taxnetworkusa.com/slash Victor. Taxnetworkusa.com/slash Victor.
1: Hello, America, and happy Monday, a busy day, a busy week coming ahead. Uh, Thursday, a major hearing on free speech. Mike Benz from the Foundation for Freedom Online, the man who's exposed a lot of the censorship machinery working with just the news the last year, Greg Piper, myself. He's going to join us to describe why that hearing could be the beginning of a resolution to a lot of the censorship that has creeped into our United States government, of course, in the public private for private censor marketplaces, where there's now a public-private partnership to censor Americans' views. That's kind of scary, isn't it? So we'll have that tomorrow. Big meeting between Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden on the debt limit. That's a big deal. On Wednesday, James Comer is going to unveil his interim report on the Hunter Biden-Joe Biden, Biden influence peddling scandal. I think we're going to get a lot on that as well. All of those major, major developments that we got to be keeping up from. And, of course, we're also going to keep an eye on efforts by members of Congress to investigate the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's the new alphabet letter suit agency that's beginning to raise concerns about political weaponization. We've had some really great journalism that I've done, other folks have done, at Just the News looking at the SEC and its failure to give an answer to the investors in the acquisition corporation That is trying to buy or merge with Truth Social and give President Trump's social media company, uh, Trump Technology and Media Group, some much needed capital to grow and play with the big boys in the social media space. And the average review for a merger like this with what is known as an acquisition corp, special purpose acquisition corp, corp or SPAC is like between 100 and 140 days. That's the normal. Donald Trump is over 350-plus days. Congressman Dan Muser from the great state of Pennsylvania is going to come here to talk about why he sees weaponizations and political conflicts of interest. We'll have that in the first block of the show. Then we'll go to Mike Benz and the great work on fighting censorship in the second half of the show. Now, before we get there, and I mentioned that James Comer is going to have his big news conference and release some major information. He said it's so big and impactful, it covers things that other people have not in the Justice Department that he thinks the DOJ should hold off, should hold off indicting Hunter Biden until they see his evidence. That's pretty amazing stuff and uh, pretty exciting. But before we get there, right, I want to make sure that we talk about the scoop I had this morning. We now have two instances, once in 2020 at the FBI and the new one in 2018 at the Justice Department through the U.S. Attorney in New York, two instances where the Justice Department received information that not Hunter Biden, but that Joe Biden was in a pay-to-play bribery scheme. Joe Biden took actions that might have violated federal law. And in both times, the information appears to have been turned away or not acted on. The first time, 2020, a confidential human source working with the FBI provided detailed information of a pay-to-play bribery scheme. And according to Chuck Grassley and James Comber, that wasn't followed. This weekend, we interviewed former Little Rock U.S. Attorney Bud Cummins, one of the most respected former federal prosecutors in the U.S. government. He approached his former colleague at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York Jeffrey Berman in 2018 saying he had a Ukraine witness, a foreign witness, the actually the chief prosecutor, the attorney general of Ukraine, wanted to come to the United States and provide evidence of a pay-to-play scheme involving Joe Biden. Not Hunter, but Joe Biden. In other words, Joe Biden was taking money through his family and then making policy decisions to benefit those who were his son's benefactors. That lead, which went directly to the U.S. attorney, we now have the emails. You can read the emails. It went to the New York U.S. attorney and nothing happened. It fell into a black hole. The only thing that happened is, for his troubles, Bud Cummins had his phone records, his phone data from his iPhone, secretly seized by the United States government in an apparent effort to find out who he was dealing with, who his contacts were, who his sources were. Punish the complainant, not the actual person who's been alleged to commit wrongdoing. lot of new evidence developing on this front. We're going to have a lot more over the next several Weeks on that. But two examples. Go check this story out. The headline is ex-prosecutor approached DOJ in 2018 with a witness who claimed Joe Biden involved bribery. It's the second such witness to appear in the last week that we now know about. Really important stuff. So, all right. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to spend the first block of the show with Congressman Dan Muser talking about another weaponization, the weaponization of the... Securities and Exchange Commission, potentially against Donald Trump's social media company. Also, we'll be talking about the immigration software coming up later this week. And then the second half of the show, my good friend Mike Benz, the head of the Foundation for Freedom Online, will join us and talk about censorship, censorship, and oh, more censorship because a lot of it's going on. We're exposing it. The FFO is exposing it. We'll have that right after these messages. (laughs) Hey, folks, John Solomon here from John Solomon Reports. I'm proud to be on the iHeartRadio app every day with my podcast, with the news that we bring, the exclusive interviews. And you know what else is great? You can listen to any iHeartRadio station anywhere in the country inside this free the iHeart app radio. If you don't have it right now, the iHeart radio app is a winner. Be sure to download the free iHeart radio app today and start streaming your favorite radio stations your favorite podcasts, and your favorite music playlists right from the iHeartRadio app. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward An investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC AMAC.us slash just news to become a four-year member for just. $30. Join now at AMAC, amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us forward slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Many of you may have saw a story I wrote last week. If you did you 're going to remember the Congressman that played a central role in it. Congressman Dan Muser, from the great state of Pennsylvania, really grilled the Securities and Exchange Chairman Gary Gensler as he should. There are some really serious questions about politicalization of the SEC, particularly as it relates to former President donald trump's social media company, Truth Social. We're lucky enough to have Congressman Muser join us right now. Congressman, welcome back to the show. John, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Great honor to have you on. You have an op-ed out since that incredible exchange with Gary Gensler saying there is political bias hurting not just you know wealthy people, but blue-collar people who invest in important things like Truth Social or the DWAC, the uh, Acquisition Corp that was trying to merge with it. Tell us a little bit about what we've learned about the SEC and how it is treating Trump Media and Technology Group very different than almost any other company that was involved in a merger agreement with an acquisition company.
2: Yeah, thanks very much. And it is a really important and, and, in fact, serious topic, John, as you well know. And yeah, the SEC chairman, uh, Gary Gensler, um, was we had in front of our committee, the Financial Service Committee, a couple of weeks back. And I've since met with his staff related to this, this issue with Trump Media and Technology Group, TMTG, and their merger with uh, DWAC, but Digital World Acquisition Corporation. Uh, they're looking to merge to allow Truth Social, you know, a great new social media outlet for um, to, to go public. Yet the problem is that it is um, inexplicable why, absolutely inexplicable, uh, why we have seen immense delays, immense delays to the point of it's been about 355 days, I think exactly 355 days, uh, waiting on a review, a response, and approval, where typically this takes about 100 days. Under Gary Gensler, it takes 130 days. So why is it that this was such an outlier? And, and I'll walk you through it to an extent, but I want you – well, you know this, but your audience to know that we have some serious concerns about conflicts of interests. And this is not a, um, a, a boogeyman situation. I mean, Gary Gensler, uh, in 2016, the chairman of the SEC, was the CFO, the chief financial officer for the Hillary Clinton campaign, as well – under oath during an investigation, the campaign chairman for the Hillary Clinton campaign, John Podesta, a name we remember, under oath, he stated, yeah, Gary Gensler was the, wrote the check. He funded the Steele dossier, uh, yeah, knowing full well what it was and then facilitating the, the, the highly denounced Steele dossier to the FBI. But to add to that, so certainly he's, he has a conflict of interest on anything related to uh, Donald J. Trump, our uh, 45th and former president. As well, Melissa Hodgman was married to that wonderful character, Peter Schrock. Yeah, Peter Schrock, and, and still is, uh, which is, which is hard to believe. Uh, he is the director of enforcement at the SEC, overseeing the approval process for uh, this, um, this merger. And so, you know, we all remember good old Peter Strzok, uh, this person who stood in, stood in the way and wrote emails on how we can't make, let Donald Trump be president uh, and uh, lied about it uh, and is probably one of the most unlikable folks, um, uh, you know, that, that we've come, come across. And yet, yet the wife is overseeing this. And then add a little bit more to it, a Megan Barbero who worked on two of impeachments. Right? Impeachment. So a reasonable question is, why haven't any of these people recused themselves? I mean, they've clear hatred and contempt uh, for uh, and bias, uh, and yet no, nothing was done, and we have a, a real outlier situation here. So, so clearly, my constituents and the 20 million individual investors Uh, in the um, TMTG-DWAC merger in the new company have reasonable questions to ask. Why isn't this being allowed to go through and um, explain to us how we shouldn't think that there's a, a conflict of interest here?
1: Yeah, it's such a powerful argument. And you got all these anti-Trumpers that are in this agency, and they just happen to slow down this transaction three times longer than in the average transaction that normally goes through there. That, on its face, creates really serious questions. You didn't seem like uh, you were very satisfied with uh, Chairman Gensler's answers. He seemed to do a little bit of the Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope as I was watching him. You asked really precise questions, and he wasn't so precise in his answers, was he?
2: No, no. But you know what? The Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope was effective. We're not going to allow this to be effective. Um, he's, he's not going to win. Uh, since then, I did meet with and win just simply. We want, we want answers. We want the response. We want the truth. He's paid by the taxpayers. The SEC has a mission statement, right? Their mission statement is threefold. To protect investors, And eh, they're certainly not doing that here. There's 20 million people who, who are hanging out to dry maintain fair and orderly markets, not doing that, and facilitate capital formation. So none of that is being carried out. We are asking for equal justice. And I am telling you, we are going to stay on this until we get it. Because again, they're not providing, the conflict of interest is there, it's, it's obvious, but they still, have to, they still should be, have to follow the law and engage in a somewhat orderly manner. And they're, they're, they're simply not doing that. Uh, they're not reviewing. They're not providing feedback on, on the S-4, which is, re, which is the registration statement that's needed for approval. It's been this extensive amount of time. And all they're doing is harming. That's the other thing here, John. They're not harming President Trump. President Trump is a very, very wealthy man. The value of truth social is not going anywhere. Only those that haven't made those individual investors could be harmed because of the SEC's treatment of this. And that's really awful. And I will tell you this, the only reason that the um, uh, truth social uh, owned uh, basically by, by uh, uh, President Trump is hanging in there and spending the money on, on legal fees and, and everything else is for those 20 million investors, because his value in it is going to be the same. It, it'll, it'll move forward and be there and strengthen and everything else. So he's, he's doing this as frankly, I think he, he always does for uh, and, and I believe this firmly for the greater good. And that's why I am fighting it for the greater good. a constituent of mine brought this to my attention initially. And at first I said, okay, let me look at it and then look further, and the further you looked, the more serious and unfair the whole situation uh, clearly is. Yeah, and
1: that is the most powerful thing, not only about the argument you made in the hearing, to Chairman Gensler, but in this really powerful op-ed that you wrote, it's not Donald Trump that's being hurt here. It's everyday Americans who might've put a little bit of their pension money in or put some of their personal money in. They're being kept on ice and prevented from making money on their investment for what now is well over a year. So do you think the SEC got that message? Or if not, how do you intend to deliver
2: it again? Well, I do think they got it. You know, the Gensler hearing was one thing. You know, one thing I've learned in um in Congress now, I mean my background was business. I was I was also Secretary of Revenue. That was my only time in um in public office. And I I, I realized that we, we need to be very effective uh, squeaky wheels. You know, I just don't me and my team we just don't hold it, uh, ask questions in a hearing. We followed up, we followed up, we followed up relentlessly until we get either an, an answer, well, until we get an answer, one way or the other, and that's what's going to be the case here. I did, as I mentioned, at a follow-up meeting with a number of uh, top SEC officials, uh, including the general counsel, and it was a good meeting. We shared information. I was very direct. It was, it was, it was Zoom, but it was, you know, we, we got the, we, and they promised us some very reasonable data, and the data simply is, and we were very specific, Show, we want to know how much of an outlier this is, how how uh, abnormal is this a situation with with Trump social or tr- Trump social? Listen to me, truth social. And we're going to find that out. And we're also going to find out what is the legal basis for the delay uh, and everything else that we need to know, because that's only asking reasonable transparency from a taxpayer funded uh, agency, which the SEC is. So we're going, to, we're, going to push we're going to get to the bottom of it. And I'll also add this. The Financial Service Committee of the, or at least the leadership, the majority leadership of the United States House of Representatives is completely behind this. And it's very important the SEC know that. We have the full support of the Financial Service Committee in getting to the bottom uh, of this and seeing what's going on. And how many other, how many other companies are being mistreated in this way?
1: That is the question. This, And and we've seen you know, from the FBI to the Justice Department to the SEC, the evidence of creeping political influence in agencies that are supposed to be blind to politics, right? They're supposed to just administer the law with equality. And we don't see that. We see a lot of disparate treatment depending on people's relationships or their political views or their political alliances. And I think that's what people were so impressed when they watched your exchange. And it was, anyone who hasn't seen it, we put it up on Just the News. It is a Remarkable exchange. You really see a congressman doing real oversight when you see, see you doing this. So I want to flip to another thing because this week is a very big week. Title 42 is going to expire, and every state, including the great state of Pennsylvania, has now been made a border state with fentanyl crime, the movement of illegal aliens into the interior. Tell us about the Republican solution, this very important immigration legislation coming to the floor this
2: week. Well, you know what? It's a common sense solution. Uh, HR 2. As are, our, our, you know, very obviously a very important bill. It's a very important uh, crisis situation uh, to the American people, to every state, from the drugs coming across to the deaths that, that are caused by these illegal drugs, to just a wildly open border and 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 an administration doing nothing about it except making it worse. Uh, it's an outrage. So and now we've got a Title 42, which was was a COVID. Uh, response, allowing us to send um, non-adolescents uh, back due, due to COVID. Now that's being lifted and illegals are just lining up at the border. And what's worse is, as you know, mo- most of these uh, uh, people are coming across at the um, at, with the accommodation of the, the coyotes, uh, the cartels, uh, those engaged in human trafficking, those engaged in drug smuggling, so just a really ser- so our response is, um, is very common sense. Look, build the barrier, i.e. wall, uh, in the appropriate places where, of course, that works. You know, uh, 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 stop the nonsense. Just go spend even only 15 minutes at the border with the, with the Customs and Border Patrol. They'll say to you, we need to patrol here, but we need- don't need to patrol over there because there's a wall. It's real simple. Um, Secondly, the whole catch and release, Remain in Mexico is also part of this, tightening up the ridiculous asylum laws because currently all somebody has to do is say, oh, I'm afraid to go back to my country and we're letting them in. Not only just letting them in, it's, it's under catch and release. They're being taught what to say. So the whole thing is just a an outrageous debacle. We have a solution to it. And anyone who doesn't vote for it is a for the current situation to persist. And anyone who votes for it is for correcting the situation and returning us uh, to where we were just a few years ago. And I will add this: under President Trump, where the border wasn't perfect, but there was it was orderly, and we um, uh, we we had control of the border. Where we currently. now HR2 will give us control uh, of the border.
1: A big, big moment, an exciting moment. People have been clamoring for a solution. This is a real I- set of ideas that are known to work. It puts the bonus back now on Senate Democrats and Joe Biden to engage or face the wrath of the American voters in the next election. Sir, you come from one of the great energy states, and without Pennsylvania, we couldn't do what we do in this great country. Recently, you were named co-chair of the Congressional Coal Caucus. That's a big deal. Tell us a little bit about how the coal industry is doing, particularly under President Biden, which seems like it's under assault every day, and where it still plays an important vital role in our energy sourcing.
2: Well, I'm happy to co chair the uh co caucus with Harriet Hagman from uh, new uh, New Mexico. Or excuse me, New Mexico. My, yeah, Wyoming, right? Yeah. Yeah, Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 the, the I mean, Liz cheney Slayer. <laughs> say goodbye to uh Lee right? Anyway, uh, Bill Johnson and Morgan Griffith. Uh all um all great uh, members and uh have the districts include um uh, much coal. I I happen to have Anthracite coal, really the center of anthracite coal in the United States, and in fact the world, anthracite coal has been used traditionally over the last, primarily 20 years, not necessarily for burning, but for steel manufacturing, and for the production of filters and, and other other manufactured devices. And only because it's a hard coal and it's more expensive than the bituminous, which is more used for uh, for um, burning purposes for fuel. But it's, it's interesting that people should know that still to this day, 20 percent of our electricity in the United States comes from, from uh, coal energy plants, coal driven energy plants. So it still has remained significant and for good reason, because it's very reliable uh, and, and, and it's available. Now, I will just <laughs> I will tell you this uh, under since Joe Biden has come into office and he they have put such an assault on primarily American energy. Natural gas and oil. The coal industry has flourished because of this. There's more coal being shipped to Japan and other and Europe and other places in the world. Now, some of that was due to the Ukraine, uh, the uh, invasion of the Ukraine, but for the most part, it's been it's been it's been the Biden administration's energy policies, domestic energy policies, have backfired. Now, my uh, coal companies are are not displeased about that. Uh, but that 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 actually is the case they 're doing better. We just want clean coal to be understood better uh, to be utilized for the functions that it is, and we cannot put restrictions on it because without it, the steel industry the all important steel industry uh, will go will go completely overseas and we want we want to make sure that steel is being made in America that we are a steel independent, if you will, and uh, should any uh, for just general economic and infrastructure development purposes, but as well should an emergency occur, such as wars breaking out or anything of that nature. So that's why the stockpiling and availability of coal and steel and this caucus, as you stated, really is, uh, really is very important. And I'm really honored to represent my coal companies. Uh, and the U.S. coal industry within the caucus.
1: Energy security is national security, something that we learn every day more and more. Particularly, Joe Biden has made it all the more painfully aware to everyday Americans. that tie between national security and energy security is very real. Last quick moment. It was a great horse race this weekend, a Kentucky Derby. And Angel of Empire from your neck of the woods, from Pennsylvania's great ninth District, finished third. A lot of pride, I think, in Pennsylvania with that finish this weekend.
2: Yeah, I'll tell you what. Pennsylvania breeding—that's they, they, a sign of it. That's uh, we uh, that, that horse. Um, you know, look out for it in the Preakness because she was only—he was only a half a length behind with—I don't know what it was—a couple hundred yards to go—and um, but finished third. Um, and we're uh, we're just we're, we're, we're very happy about it. It was great. So I'm, I think I'm going to have to. I had too many district events this past weekend, and I, I've never made it out to the Kentucky Derby, but I'm going to see about making it. Back. And and cheer cheer him on.
1: Absolutely. And Pennsylvania proud. There's no doubt about that. Congressman, it's a great honor to have you on the show. We learned so much. This SEC thinks so many people are watching now, and it's become right up there with the DOJ and the FBI in terms of political and weaponization concerns, and you are leading the charge for the American people. We're really grateful for the update today.
2: Hey, I really appreciate it, Johnny. You do a great job, and and uh, you got a lot of great followers. So thanks for having me on. I look forward to being back on uh, in the near future.
1: Absolutely. Great honor to have you here, sir. Thank you so much. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, a big conversation with Mike Benz, the man who has single-handedly uncovered a large amount of the government and private sector Welcome back from the commercial break. My next guest I'm so proud of. Over the last couple of years, he has had some of the most profound impact on American free speech than anyone I can think of. Exposing time and time again, a massive censorship system that was a public-private partnership, federal government encouraging private actors to censor your and mine and everyone else's free speech. Joining me right now from the Foundation for Freedom Online, my good friend and champion of first speech, Mike Benz. Mike, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you, John, so much for having me.
1: You are a man of impact. I call you a comet that hit and left a big crater in the American landscape because for a long time, people were willing to seed the ground in the erosion of free speech. And you came along, you created this foundation and you said, no, I'm not. Wait till you see what your government and these private entities are doing, and literally single-handedly began to flip this debate. We learned about the Homeland Security Agency and all of the work it was doing, the FBI, the assistance that you provided the attorneys generals, the assistance you provided Congress. It is really remarkable. And this morning, yet again, you helped us here at Just the News expose another story with Greg Piper. Let's start there because it's jaw-dropping to think that there's a U.S. government agency, by the way, a very big and powerful one, who thinks that people with a pro-life view somehow have a potential to become radical terrorists or radical anti-Americans. Tell us what you uncovered this morning.
3: Sure. So these are documents that were obtained uh, via FOIA from the America First Legal Foundation, that showed a DHS political police power, essentially, the first week the Biden administration took office, that that created essentially a DHS uh, choose-your-own-adventure-style video series under the banner of de-radicalization. But really what it was, was a, uh, a series of videos designed to brainwash U.S. citizen bystanders of uh, of people with right-wing views or people who are pro-life suburban house moms and to inter- intervene on their personal lives in order to stop the development of their political opinions. So what it would do is, so DHS essentially did a, a screenwriting exercise for, uh, for videos that took suburban house, house moms and these screenplays, had vivid descriptions of who these people were. You know, it would say Anne, a uh, middle-aged, divorced suburban house uh, house mom. The video will have uh, uh, pictures of laundry, of minivans, and uh, she she uses the phrase "baby killer" at a at a bakery uh, event. Uh, you are a bystander who hears her use this phrase at a bakery. What should you do as a bystander to deradicalize Anne? And they, they include directives to U.S. citizens watching these DHS videos to call Anne's husband, to call Anne's preacher, to snoop on her social media. It's essentially the creation of a modern sort of Stasi. Uh, DHS is attempting to create a, basically, a culture of informing on people with conservative views. And they, they create sort of these paradigms for a whole ring of others as well, people who, uh, you know, who... Uh, post on certain websites online people who are skeptical of the government or who have accused the government of being involved in certain uh, illegal activities they 're essentially trying to set up a a private informant army, a culture of of monitoring and stitch and snitching uh, similar to what was done in communist uh, Soviet times or Frankly, in in, uh, in Nazi times in the 1930s, this is essentially the culture of informing, um, and they're using the DHS to do it.
1: It is unreal, communism, socialism at its best, and in some ways it mirrors a little bit of what China's done the last 10 or 20 years, whether it's a social credit score or its own informing on people. Of course, it has cameras everywhere, so they don't need a lot of human sources anymore. They can just record this all day, but there is some origins of this line of thinking, this line of government tactic, this line of dividing the populace that really finds its roots in China, in the Soviet Union, in many of their tactical guides, right?
3: Right, right. And, you know, one of the things that's made the U.S. so distinctive is that culture of freedom, that culture of individualism, that culture of, you know, every family sets its own destiny, rather than this kind of collectivist, constricting culture where Everyone, there's, there's no chance to really have a life outside of the state because all of your, your friends and family are informing for the state as well. I think for the Stasi, there were over 200,000 people who served as sort of citizen informants. Uh, that really seems to be the goal of DHS. And the fact that they're parking it at DHS to do it release really these volumes because the FBI wouldn't be able to pull off a program like this because they require, they require some form of suspected law breaking to kick into action. DHS is the only other you know, domestic-facing intelligence or law enforcement agency, and they're not restricted uh, by law breaking in the way that, that uh, the Justice Department and FBI are. So they're really trying to create this domestic political police force that can fill the gaps of what the FBI is restricted from doing. And it's this brand-new innovation. We saw that in the censorship space. Uh, with reporting from Just the News and from FFO over the past year. And really, it's it's an expansive kind of political thought control uh, apparatus being set up at DHS. And if it's not stopped now, you can imagine this thing scaling, really to what you're saying, into a true China-style system.
1: You said it just right. That is the stakes. The stakes are that large. One of the amazing things for me, and obviously the FBI had its own issue with the San Francisco Elvis Chan operation, where even though the FBI's job wasn't to enforce Twitter and Facebook's terms of service. They seem to spend all day enforcing it in such a way as to silence people. But I want to put the FBI in a it for a second and focus on DHS because between ICE and DHS, there's this thing and everybody says, well, wait, Homeland was created to prevent foreign terrorist attacks. Where do they derive their authority to monitor speech? It's a remarkable gymnastic leap on how they came about their authority claiming that misinformation is the attack on infrastructure. Tell us a little bit about how they constructed something that the law and Congress never gave home
3: then. Sure. It's incredible. It's probably one of the most stunning examples of a federal bureaucracy mission creep that has ever happened in this country. So the origin of it started on January 6, 2017, with an with a executive order within DHS by the outgoing Obama uh, DHS Secretary, Jed Johnson, declaring elections to be critical infrastructure. From there, you had, uh, you had a DHS subagency created called CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which took that, that executive order saying that elections are critical infrastructure and made the argument that misinformation is a form of cyber attack on critical infrastructure, because critical infrastructure are elections. Misinformation, they said, undermines public faith and confidence in elections. And so if you squint and look at it from a distance, and you sort of apply a kind of Rorschach inkblot test cognitively and say, okay, well, uh, there's this is a cyber attack, because misinformation is just another in a litany. They sort of added it to malware, hacking, and they sort of added as an addendum, mis and disinformation online as a sort of new category of cyber attack. And so this gave the cybersecurity agency at DHS long-arm jurisdiction to declare opinions about elections on the internet to be a cyber attack akin to a hacking, you know, a a hack attack. Um, And this started with the conflation of Russiagate, you know, this idea that Russians had if you know, maybe they didn't hack the voting machines, but then they hacked our hearts and minds. And then, and then when RussiaGate dissolved in the summer of 2019, they simply pulled off what I just, what I sort of call the foreign to domestic switcheroo. They had set up all of this infrastructure with talking to the social media companies to take down the Russians. They said, well, you know, uh, even though the, even though t- Trump and Trump supporters are not Russians disinformation is a threat to democracy. So we might as well keep all this censorship infrastructure that we developed to take on Russian propaganda and just use it against Trump propaganda. essentially the way that they, uh, that they, they rationalized it, except that they, they cloaked it in these generic terms of mis- and disinformation. But then they, de- they only defined mis- and disinformation to be sort of right-wing ideas or talking points or slogans or hashtags. Then once they got away with censorship of the 2020 election – they said, well, you know, now that you look at it, elections aren't the only critical infrastructure we have. Public health is critical infrastructure. So now we can censor what you say about COVID. You know, um, uh, uh, immigration is critical infrastructure. Energy is critical infrastructure. Uh, geopolitics is, in, is critical infrastructure. It even got to the point where the CISA director, Jen Shirley, said cognitive infrastructure is critical infrastructure. That is the thoughts in your head, uh, if you squint and look at it, are uh, sort of part of the critical infrastructure of democracy. And so now CISA can censor anything as a cyber attack on uh, on critical infrastructure if you simply think it in your head. That was the direction things were, were skating towards until uh, uh, our elected representatives and Elon Musk seemed to be roused from slumber in mid-2022 uh, with a uh, – you know with with really the first full-throated counteroffensive against the, uh, these government censorship activities first targeting the disinformation governance board and then breaking these sort of big tech um phalanx these sort of silicon uh, you know uh, wall if you will that had descended over all of social media when uh, with the Musk purchase so then they, Since that time, I think DHS has been trying to stuff more and more of the censorship operations into the private sector, into civil society to bury it. Uh, but much of it is still there and needs to be routed out, especially these laundering operations through DHS, DOD, state, and, and other equities. And, and that's part of FFO's mission is to help shine that light so that Um, informed citizens and elected representatives can, can take appropriate action.
1: Now, you've had a tremendous impact. And by the way, our elected representatives were awakened from their slumber, along with Twitter and others, because of the great work that the Foundation for Freedom Online did. You really are the singular force that ignited the candle that got this going. And I want people to understand that what the Foundation for Freedom Online is doing is epically important to the future of America. And it really was a sole source movement. You started it. Now you you bring in a lot of people along for the ride who either were silent and therefore complicitous or were unaware and needed to be told. But I want to give that credit to you because it is real credit. It's really earned. And there is real impact. As the censorship machinery began to flourish between Homeland, the FBI, and then the private sector, social media companies, a second wave of censorship and cancel culture began to build, organizations that were designed to take the censorship mentality and extend it to erasing financial support for conservatives, advertising, and things like that. One of those organizations was an overseas entity. When you first highlighted what it was doing, Microsoft very quickly pulled out of the coalition, and then a couple of days later, the coalition itself, the GDI, the Global Disinformation Index, shut down Tell folks, first off, how you did it, and two, why it's such a major victory for free speech, the closing down of the
3: GDI. Sure. So, the Global Disinformation Index is one of a consortium of these sort of um, targeting, bankrupting uh, private sector companies that was set up really in the aftermath of the 2016 election when you had a lot of folks from the national security state and sort of political operative opportunists who looked around and thought that they were losing elections because alternative websites, alternative news sources to the traditional sort of legacy mainstream media were now having a larger collective impact on hearts and minds and therefore on democratic outcomes than the mainstream news itself. And so they came up with a number of innovations in order to kind of uh, take out the competition by uh, by essentially bankrupting them and by rel- and limiting their click-through traffic, their ad revenue, uh, and kicking them essentially to the fringes to the point where they couldn't operate like a traditional media company could. It essentially created a two-tier media system in the country. The Global Disinformation Index is is sort of an heir to this national security state, um, in- interstitial, you know, sort of government-private sector alliance on its board were Ben Nimmo, Ann Applebaum, and Peter Pomerantsev, who were three individuals who were all in the same UK inner cluster cell, uh, a- along with Nina Jankovic, you know, the, uh, the woman who was named the head of the disinformation governance board in April of last year. She was part of this essentially NATO clandestine operation that got busted in 2019 for running disinformation campaigns all over NATO countries to stop right-wing populist parties from rising to power. It looks like Nina Jankovic's buddies, that is three of her uh, inner cluster cell members of that that NATO-backed disinfo campaign, were all on the board of this global disinformation index. So they went straight from uh, censoring conservative candidates and political parties associated with Brexit or Marine Le Pen in France or Matteo Salvini in Italy the works straight into a private sector company after their after their essentially government backed uh and the global engagement center was a partner in that as well with the UK foreign office they went from a government backed censorship consortium once the the leak documents blew that operation up they then essentially started a private company to then do in a commercialized version uh the act of censoring their political opponents now as with many things in this space, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Uh, once FFO and some intrepid research from uh, from Gabe Kaminsky at the Washington Examiner uh, blew up the U.S. government taxpayer funding of the Global Disinformation Index through the National Endowment for Democracy, which in many ways has operated as a CIA cutout since its founding in 1983, once that began to hit the news, uh, the government funding shut down as fast as the Disinformation Governance Board shut down. Now, part of this is because they didn't launder the funding very well. You know, the funding went straight from the government to the to the censorship company, just like the Disinformation Governance Board probably would have lived a lot longer if it had given itself a less Orwellian name like CISA did. You know, CISA has got away with it for a long time because they didn't call themselves the censorship agency. They called themselves the cybersecurity agency. But the great thing is, is, Everyone knows in their bones that this is wrong, this is dystopian, and this is the, this is the speed lane to China. Uh, so uh, once it's exposed, often the government funding does dry up. Uh, we need to now do this at scale and, and target every single one of these entities and make it so that the U.S. government is not a customer of the censorship industry.
1: Such important work. now. You have done more than anyone to highlight the mechanisms and the abuses and the threats of our speech. And the question now is, well, how are we going to fix it? And obviously, shutting down certain things like GDI is one way to fix it. But there's a big moment this week when we'll have a hearing this Thursday. And really, the focal point of the hearing will not only be to expose, but to begin to craft legislative solutions. Tell us why Thursday is such an important day in the House.
3: Great. So Thursday, the the House Homeland Security Committee is going to be having a targeted hearing on just the Department of Homeland Security's role in the censorship industry and the abuses that DHS did over the past three years to spearhead uh, what what they call a whole of society counter disinformation effort. You know, disinformation is just a, you know, that's just censor speech for censorship. And DHS came up with this model where the US government, private sector companies, civil society, nonprofits, and universities, and their political allies in the news media and fact-checking orgs would all work together as sort of four legs of a censorship stool that, would, that was spearheaded within DHS uh, in order to get every single institution that could apply pressure on censorship of conservatives, frankly, and of COVID skeptics, um, in order to, to do that. Uh, and they did that under, under CISA and they, they outsourced these censorship operations to third party uh, private sector groups, but they did so very deliberately to quote, fill the gaps of what the government could not do itself. That's a direct quote from one of DHS's top censorship partners um, who recently was also sued in a, in a lawsuit by America First Legal uh, just last week. What DHS has the opportunity to do now is to probe at the subpoena level at the witness at the witness interrogation level, and to bring uh, both transparency and accountability to a runaway train at dhs uh, that was really the heart of the of the whole of government censorship response you know this the disinformation governance board was set up at dhs that was not the ministry of truth like uh, that was a well intentioned phrase by by many free speech activists to use that. But the Ministry of Truth had already existed at DHS since 2020 uh, under under CISA, under the Cyber, Cyber Censorship Agency, essentially. The Disinformation Governance Board was because DHS was acting as a sort of uh, coordinating body within the government to coordinate the censorship laundering processes at the Department of Defense, at the Department of State, uh, within, within the FBI, at uh, the Global Engagement Center, at USAID, at the National Endowment for Democracy. DHS was sort of the coordinating node both within the government and to their censorship consortium partners on the outside. Now, it does look like DHS has started to try to close that down after a, after a string of, of hard-hitting news essentially blew it up over the past several months. Uh, you know, one of the things FFO has covered is that they purged their website of all of their domestic-facing censorship work that they were loud and proud about for two full years until just weeks ago. Right. Well, now, you know, there's there's two things. One, we need accountability for what happened. And we also need to know uh so so there's much that can be subpoenaed there. And you know, the the house I think it's going to take frankly more than one hearing. I think it's going to take probably 3, 4, maybe even 5 hearings to go through all of the different uh uh networks, all the different money flows, um to get inside their heads, just to really get them on record with what they were thinking, because it does look like they now know that they done goofed here and are trying to essentially return, you know, the murder weapon, if you will, uh, for the First Amendment. Uh, As soon as the investigators knocked on the House, it's almost like they're trying to put it back. But everyone knows, you know, they got away with this once, or frankly, you know, uh, twice, if you count if you count the election cycles of 2020 and and 2022, as well as with COVID-19 and others, this can never happen again. A message needs to be sent that any government actors, any government agencies that try to do a CCP style truth ministry in the future are going to be exposed. They're going to be dealt with and there's going to be repercussions and it's going to be put on a jumbotron for the entire world to see. Um, if, if, it's only a, if it's only, you know, a sort of tepid response here, um, that will embolden uh, them to try to scale these censorship operations when really the time is right now to shut the entire thing down. Yeah,
1: just remarkable. It really is. Mike, you're doing amazing work for people who are proud, want to learn more, want to get involved. What's the best way for people to stay in touch with the Foundation for Freedom Online and all the great work you're doing?
3: You can find us at foundationforfreedomonline.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at FFO underscore freedom. And you can find me at Mike Ben Cyber on Twitter. And John, thank you to you as well. You know, in many ways, we model our objective reporting on on the uh, really the, the example that just the news has been setting. And I want to say that uh, we at the foundation are very, very grateful for your work as well. well.
1: We're grateful to be able to cover your work every day because it is newsworthy and it is freedom protecting. And we're in a moment of enormous peril in the America that we used to live in or we, we've been living in. And folks like you, Mike, are really holding the line and making a difference and having uh, the key word is impact. And we're just so grateful that you're stepped into the breach and are protecting our liberty, particularly our liberty of free speech. So thanks again, my friend. We're going to get you on real soon again, because maybe right after the hearing, we'll have more news we'll have to talk about.
3: Great. Sounds good. Thanks
1: so much, John. Thank you, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, All right, folks, welcome back. Thank you for joining us today. A big thank you to Congressman Muser and to Mike Benz, two people having a big impact in protecting our liberties, our civil liberties, our free speech, our due process, all of the things that our founding fathers found so essential. But today, in the bureaucracy and in some of the body politic, no longer regard it with the same protections as before. So we're really excited about that so glad to have them. If you want to get a copy of my new children's book, Hidden Headlines, which teaches the dangers of censorship and why the First Amendment was first to our founding fathers, why we need to restore it to being first, go to bravebooks.us right now. Bravebooks.us. You'll get my book free if you sign up for the subscription book club. If not, you can buy my book a la carte. All of them very important discussion. My son's Hamster Chunk, an inquiring dog name, Seymour Clues, a detective. They pair together to solve a major censorship issue, keeping the Hamster Headlines newspaper from getting to the hamster village. The tubes in the village are clogged. Yep, that's the allegory for social media censorship. Go check out that book. It's a great way to teach your children, grandchildren, nephews and nieces the importance of free speech, maybe something that they're educators aren't doing for them. All right, folks, we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, God bless you and have a great night. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution.